Throughout our history, we've learned that when dictators do not pay the price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and engage in more aggression. They keep moving. We can't let this happen. Our unity at home, our unity with our allies and partners, and our unity with the Ukrainian people is sending an unmistakable message to Putin. You will never succeed in dominating Ukraine. Our unity at home. Maybe I lost the thread there. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No day. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WMHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites. Except for Spotify, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for what I'd love to call another thrilling Bradcast, but I don't know how thrilling it'll actually be, Desi Doyen. I'm sorry <laughs> well, in advance. Okay, we'll just go for informative. How about that? There you, we, we, will, we will go for informative. It may not be very cheery, so yeah, apologies in advance. I don't create the news. I just report on it. For example, just before airtime today, I'm, I, I received two separate alerts on my iPhone, have not been able to click through to either of them. They seem to be somewhat conflicting. Washington Post reports that Oklahoma is poised to enact a total abortion ban, the first state to do so after legislature passes uh, a Republican bill to do so. A few minutes later, the New York Times reports the Oklahoma legislature approved a bill prohibiting abortions after about six weeks. So... Uh, modeled on the one that uh, took effect in Texas in September. So not a total abortion ban, I guess, as reported by The Times in conflict with with Washington Post. Either one of them, not very good, not very cheery, sorry in advance. And, of course, all of this has to do with our stolen and packed Supreme Court. Exactly. Uh, None of this would be happening uh, had Republicans not stolen the Supreme Court. Uh, But such as it is, they did. 
And uh, that also leads us into some of our other uh, stories we'll be covering today, unfortunately. Uh, All of which, while maybe not cheery, I think is important, including remarks from Joe Biden at the White House today. You heard a bit of it at the top there uh, that I think you need to know about. Whether it's particularly cheery or not. Because, as they say, forewarned is forearmed. So, speaking of which, let's start here. Judge J. Michael Luttig. He is a widely respected and, yes, very conservative federal judge nominated to the Federal Court of Appeals back in 1991 by President George H.W. Bush, George Bush Sr. He was, at the time of his appointment, At age 37, the youngest judge on a uh, federal appeals court. On the bench, Judge Ludwig was compared to Justice Antonin Scalia. He was mentioned frequently as being near the top of George W. Bush's list of potential nominees to the Supreme Court. Bush, actually, the Bush the Younger, interviewed him uh, several times, but ultimately did not choose Ludwig to fill two different Supreme Court vacancies back in 2005. Virtually all of Ludwig's law clerks have gone on to clerk with conservative justices on the Supreme Court, a total of about 40 of them, 33 of whom clerked either for Justice Clarence Thomas or Justice Scalia. And as a bit of a side note here, Ludwig's father was fatally shot in a 1994 carjacking by a 17-year-old minor. He was killed. Ludwig testified in the sentencing portion of the trial in support of imposition of the death penalty against this minor, even though the murderer was 17 years old at the time he killed his father. The man was ultimately convicted, condemned to death, and eventually executed after twice appealing to the U.S. Supreme Court and losing, where Justice Antonin Scalia, David Souter, and Clarence Thomas at the time recused themselves because of past associations with Judge Ludwig. You mean Supreme Court justices in the past have recused themselves? Not only can they recuse themselves, but Clarence Thomas can recuse himself. So it is possible. At least, yeah, it's possible. At least when the public knows that he has a stake in the matters before him, as opposed to when, you know, his activist wife, Ginny, is secretly on salary for one of the parties involved in one of the cases that Thomas is seeing, or when Ginny has been writing secret text messages to Donald Trump's chief of staff to encourage him to steal a presidential election, as was the case in 2020, even as Trump, uh, you know, had a case before the court to block White House documents from being given to Congress investigating Trump's attempt to steal a presidential election. And when Clarence turned out to be the only justice on the majority Republican high court willing to block those documents, Clarence did not recuse for some reason, even though those documents might have included texts from his own wife from being turned over to the investigators in Congress. But, as I said, a side note, I digress. The point here is that Judge Ludwig is a very, very conservative, longtime federal court judge who uh, was even, you know, turned to for advice, as it turns out, by then-Vice President Mike Pence on January 6th. In other words, Ludwig is no progressive lefty, like, you know, yours truly, for instance. 
Yesterday at CNN, the very, very conservative Luddig published a long op-ed, a warning, in fact, headlined the Republican blueprint to steal the 2024 election, to steal it. He writes, nearly a year and a half later, surprisingly few understand what January 6 was all about. Fewer still understand why former President Donald Trump and Republicans persist in their long disproven claim that the 2020 presidential election was stolen, much less why they are obsessed about making the 2024 race a referendum on the, quote, stolen election of 2020, which even they know was not stolen, writes Luddick. January 6, he says, was never about a stolen election or even about actual voting fraud. It was always and only about an election that Trump lost fair and square under legislatively promulgated election rules in a handful of swing states that he and other Republicans contend were unlawfully changed by state election officials and state courts to expand the right and opportunity to vote largely in response to the COVID pandemic. The Republicans' mystifying claim to this day that Trump did or would have received more votes than Joe Biden in 2020 were it not for actual voting fraud is but the shiny object that Republicans have tauntingly and disingenuously dangled before the American public for almost a year and a half now to distract attention from their far more ambitious objective. That objective, writes Judge Ludwig, is not somehow to rescind the 2020 election, as they would have us believe. That's constitutionally impossible, he notes. Trump's and the Republicans' far more ambitious objective is to ex execute successfully in 2024 the very same plan that they failed in executing in 2020 and to overturn the 2024 election if Trump or his anointed successor, and that's very important, loses again in the next quadrennial contest. The last presidential election was a dry run for the next one, writes Ludwig. The point that it could be Trump or his anointed successor is important because, frankly, uh, I see no line, nor does Judge Ludwig here, between whether it is Trump carrying out plans to steal the next presidential election, if need be, or a different Republican who runs. The party is now largely in lockstep with plans to steal the next election, come hell or high water. And there will be literally probably much of that before then, as Desi discusses in her upcoming Green News report later on. Indeed. But in any event, Ludwig goes on to write, uh, from long before Election Day 2020, Trump and Republicans planned to overturn the presidential election by exploiting the electors and election clauses of the Constitution, the Electoral College, the Electoral Count Act of 1877, and the 12th Amendment if Trump lost the popular and electoral college vote. And we've talked about each and every one of those things. We talked about them as... Trump and the Republicans were trying to exploit them to steal the 2020 election when much of the media was looking the other way, talking about who Joe Biden was going to pick for this cabinet secretary or that cabinet secretary. All the while, they were working on trying to steal the election. But the cornerstone of the plan, writes Ludwig, was to have the Supreme Court embrace the little-known independent state legislature doctrine. 
actually the independent state legislature theory, as I see it. It's not really a doctrine yet, as it's never been accepted by uh, the, the Supreme Court, at least not by a majority of the Supreme Court. We've talked about it on this show. We've warned about it. But I'm warning about it again, along with Ludwig, the independent, legisla- independent state legislature doctrine or theory or question. Because it is going to come up, as uh, Ludwig notes here. The independent state legislature doctrine says that under the elections and electors clause of the Constitution, state legislatures uh, have exclusive power over the conduct of federal presidential elections and the selection of state presidential electors. Under this theory, not even a state Supreme Court, let alone other state election officials, can alter the legislatively written election rules or interfere with the appointment of state electors by the legislatures under this theory. As Ludwig explains, this it also this theory also says that not only may state courts have no say over what the legislatures decide, but any and all election rules that are not specifically specified by the legislature are unlawful. So any election procedures, the placement of ballot drop boxes, etc. You know, when early voting starts, etc. This is all left only to the legislature, not to the secretary of state, not to local election officials, not to the governor, not to the courts. I mean, that's, I think, really important there. It is unreviewable, absolute authority. They can do whatever they want and under no one, this theory. No one can stop Correct. them. Correct. You know, everything that has to do uh, with elections is solely up to state legislatures. That is where all of this is heading, and you need to know that. And Ludwig is trying to warn you. I'm trying to warn you. You know, unless it's somehow cut off at the pass uh, as this very conservative, longtime, well-respected judge is trying to warn here. He notes the Supreme Court has never decided whether to embrace the independent state legislature doctrine, but then Chief Justice William Rehnquist and Justices Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas in separate concurring opinions back in 2000, said that they would embrace that doctrine in their Bush v. Gore decision 20 years ago. And Republicans had every reason to believe that there were now at least five votes, a majority on the Supreme Court for the doctrine in November of 2020, with Amy Coney Barrett having been just confirmed in the 11th hour before the election, as Ludwig writes. And this is one of the reasons why the Republicans were so desperate to seat her eight days before the election. Trump and Republicans uh, had begun challenging these various election changes during the pandemic that were made uh, before the election, the expanded use of mail-in voting, early voting, etc., Uh, But as Ludwig notes, Justice Barrett, unfortunately for them, I guess, was not sworn in until after those cases were briefed and ready for decision by the court. And so in none of those cases did the Supreme Court decide the all important independent state legislature doctrine thwarted by the Supreme Court's indecision on that doctrine at the time. Trump and the Republicans turned their efforts to the second stage of their plan, exploitation of the Electoral College, 
and the Electoral Count Act, and you saw where that fell apart for them, but not for lack of trying to present slates of fake electors in hopes that Mike Pence would then declare those states to be hopelessly deadlocked. Who knows which are the correct electors throwing the whole decision of who would be the next president to the House of Representatives which would then decide not on a majority basis um, because Democrats control the majority, but on a vote of state delegations in the House where Republicans actually did have a majority. Back to Ludwig here. He notes the entire House of Cards collapsed at noon on January 6th when Pence refused to go along with the ill-conceived plan correctly concluding that he had no power to reject the votes that had been cast by the duly certified electors or to delay the count to give Republicans even more time to whip up alternative electoral slates. Now, remember, uh, Ludwig had actually advised Mike Pence on this question, who I guess had turned to him uh, for advice. And thankfully, he said, no, you yeah, can't you do that. You have no authority. But that was the last time all of this happened. Next time, Ludwig argues, could be very different. Trump and the Republicans, he says, are preparing to return to the Supreme Court, where this time they will likely win the independent state legislature doctrine. Now that Amy Coney Barrett is on the court and ready to vote, Ludwig argues that Barrett is, uh, quote, firmly aligned on that method of constitutional interpretation, along with Thomas, Alito and Gorsuch, all three of whom have written what they believe uh, th that they believe the doctrine is correct. Only last month, in a case from North Carolina, the court declined to hear four justices, Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh said that, yes, the independent state legislature question is of exceptional importance to our national elections. And the issue will continue to recur and the court should decide this issue sooner rather than later before the next presidential election. Yes, this is coming down the road. Ludwig is trying to warn the Republicans are in the throes of electing Trump endorsed candidates to state legislative offices in key swing states, installing into office their favorite state election officials who deny that Biden won the 2020 election. Offices like secretary of state, they're electing sympathetic state court judges onto the state benches, grooming, grooming their preferred potential electors for ultimate selection by the party, all so that they will be positioned to generate and transmit alternative electoral slates to Congress if need be. I think this underscores that state legislative elections matter. It, they matter a lot. It, it matters yeah. who is in charge of your state legislature when in the elections in yep. 2022 who yep. will be in place in 2024. Yeah. And this matters no matter how you may feel about Joe Biden, about the Democrats. If you want to see things get better, pay attention to what is going on in your electoral system that we are trying to tell you about before the disaster happens this time. Finally, uh, Ludwig writes, uh, they are furiously pol uh, politicking to elect Trump supporters to the Senate and the House so they can overturn the election in Congress as a last resort. Forewarned is to be forearmed, writes Ludwig. He concludes by writing, as it stands today, Trump or his anointed successor and the Republicans are poised in their word to steal from the 
Democrats the presidential election in 2024 that they falsely claim the Democrats stole from them in 2020. But, writes Luddig, there is a difference between the falsely claimed stolen, quote, stolen election of 2020 and what would be the stolen election of 2024. Unlike the Democrats' theft claimed by Republicans, the Republicans' theft would be in open defiance of the popular vote and thus the will of the American people. Poetic, though tragic, irony for America's democracy. Forewarned is forearmed. From uh, that, from one of the nation's most conservative Republican judges. Please pay attention. This is just one of the reasons why uh, real accountability is necessary for the folks who, who, well, tried to pull off this crap in the first place in 2020. It's just one of the reasons why it's so important, you know, that prosecutors like Fannie Willis in Georgia, whose special grand jury is finally being convened on Monday in Atlanta, Georgia, so important, you know, that she brings criminal charges against those who tried to steal the election in 2020, including Donald Trump and a whole coterie, a whole conspiracy of folks. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, Lindsey Graham, Mark Meadows, all of whom pressured election officials in Georgia in hopes of stealing the election for Donald Trump. It's that's why it's so important that accountability, real accountability be brought for these people now before 2024. So people can see this as an example. Will it stop them from trying again in 2024? I don't know. But not holding them accountable for what they did will certainly not help. And it will encourage them to try again, as Judge Michael Ludwig is trying to warn us about right now. So, OK, with that disturbing news, uh, I told you it wouldn't be cheery. <laughs> well, so we'll turn to something lighter uh, where Russia's war on Ukraine may be going. OK, told you it wouldn't be very cheery. Uh, nothing but good news today. Uh, Desi, you better be ready to cheer us up with your <laughs> Green News report at the end. No pressure. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. A terribly cheery one, as I said it would be, Desi Doyen. <laughs> uh, we, have not, uh, we have not covered Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine very much in recent days because, well, to be frank, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that we can offer 
uh, a whole lot to it. I, in truth, I, I don't think that many people actually can offer much here, if only because it's unclear where all of this is now going with Russia regrouping, supposedly in the south and the east uh, of Ukraine. Peace talks seemingly stalled, many waiting to learn what will be the next shoe to drop as the horrific assaults continue even as Ukraine has impressively held off Putin's forces from overtaking at least its largest cities. Nonetheless, Russia continues to use long-range artillery against some of those cities. On Thursday, following talks between Zelensky and the head of the UN in Kyiv, large explosions were witnessed in the Ukrainian capital as the UN continues to urge for a uh, safe evacuation path for thousands who are still trapped and cut off, including thousands of civilians, including children, suffering under horrendous conditions in the southeastern coastal city of Mariupol. As Russia regroups and NATO and, and much of the rest of the world continue to stick together against them, led in no small part by the Biden administration and American leadership, uh, they continue to deliver punishing sanctions and now even heavier arms to defend against the onslaught by the Russian dictator. It is unclear, however, where all of this goes from here, as Putin vows that his military objectives, whatever they actually were in the first place, will successfully be carried out. Okay. Now, I try to follow um, Russian media on, on much of this in, in order to sort of get a sense of what Russia is telling its people about what it is doing. About a week or so ago, more of their reports began focusing on something called Transnistria, which, to be frank, I had never even heard of. Had, had you heard no. of Transnistria? No, I had never. In fact, <clears throat> I, when I first saw it, I thought it was yeah. a made-up name, actually. Yeah, well, I, I have found out that um, in other cases, you know, when Russian media starts discussing uh, what they always describe as attacks by Ukrainian radicals, that tends to be a signal of where Russia itself will be focusing their next attacks. So where and what is Transnistria? It seems like it would be good to learn since they've been talking about it for the past week or so. Talking Points Memo's Josh Kavensky, who worked for several years for a Ukrainian media outlet, the Kyiv Post, uh, he recently explained Transnistria is... A little known in part because it barely exists, he writes. One of the original so-called frozen conflicts that emerged after the fall of communism. The statelet is an unrecognized Russian proxy republic contained entirely within Moldova. Now, I don't have the advantage of graphics uh, to, of a map to put up here on the radio. Yeah, but maps don't work on the radio. Not very well. But uh, Moldova is a fairly small for former uh, Soviet nation that borders Ukraine to the sort of southwest near Odessa in Ukraine. Odessa is on the Black Sea uh, in the southern part of the country. And despite attempts to reach the city and overtake it, Russia has not been able to do so. Moldova uh, is just sort of to the left of that. Uh, it is landlocked, but it's but the next country to Moldova, to its west, is then Romania. Transnistria, then, 
covers a thin strip of land on the east side of Moldova that borders Ukraine's west. And it has been uh, removed from where the bulk of the fighting has taken place to date. But, as Kavinsky reported earlier this week, it could be the next flashpoint in Russia's war against Ukraine, opening up a new front uh, in the war in a new country, or at the very minimum, ratcheting up pressure on the Ukrainian military. Transnistria covers a 250-mile strip of land along the Dniester River that makes up most of Moldova's eastern border with Ukraine. Its capital is Tiraspol, a small city on the road between Ukraine's Black Sea port of Odessa and Moldova's capital. Travelers going between the two cities need to submit to apparently three border control procedures in Ukraine, in Moldova, and crucially in Transnistria. It calls itself the Pridnestrovian Moldovan Republic. It maintains its own border controls and remains in an undeclared but frozen state of war with Moldova. Think of it like the Donbass region in the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, which sort of runs along the, the border with Russia, but this is in the east of Moldova. Transnistria, as, as Kavinsky reports, uh, is one of the granddaddies of so-called frozen conflicts in the former Soviet Union. The Ukrainian regions of Donetsk and Luhansk, that's in the Donbass on the eastern part of Ukraine, those were the other examples, though they were unfrozen, their conflicts, on February 22 of this year when uh, they declared with the support of Russia that they were somehow now independent republics, which claimed then to ask for Russia's help to defend from a Ukrainian onslaught, which was then the pretext that Russia used to launch its war on Ukraine two days later. These are uh, regions where there's low-level military activity by Russian proxies. That was the case in those Donbass regions. That's the case in Transnistria. Low-level activity aimed at defending the existence of a state that few outside of the Kremlin actually acknowledge to be real at all. Since Russia launched its full-fledged war against Ukraine in February, military analysts have pointed to Transnistria as a potential option for the Kremlin to expand its war. In the early days of the war, Belarusian uh, President Alexandra Lukashenko, an ally of Putin, uh, had appeared in front of a map with military plans that appeared to show an offensive from the statelet of Transnistria against Moldova. But speculation kicked into high gear last week after a Russian military official said that Moscow's war aims included building a land corridor across Ukraine's entire south, ending at the statelet of Transnistria. So a land bridge from Russia that goes through Mariupol to Crimea, stretches west all along the southern Black Sea, uh, the coast there along the Black Sea, to Odessa, ending in Transnistria in Moldova, essentially cutting off Ukraine entirely from the Black Sea. Russia has not been able to effectively reach Odessa, however, but as it regroups, there are concerns that this could be could be Putin's ultimate aim. Nobody really knows. 
Explosions sounded throughout the region, the Transnistrian region, earlier this week. Moldovan president uh, blamed the escalation on Russian proxies in Transnistria itself. Local officials blamed Ukrainian saboteurs. I have no idea who is right. But it mirrors exactly what happened in Donbass. And the Transnistria statelet's government said that it was itself going to soon decide whether to, quote, protect the interests of the republic as images circulated online of military checkpoints appearing within the breakaway region. Mm. So, again, it could be so, it could be something akin to what happened in the Donbass region just before Russia rolled in at the end of February. Makes yes, sense? Yes, it does totally make sense. It would follow the pattern, as you've laid out here, the pattern of an eastern portion yeah. of these former Soviet countries or former you know, Soviet satellite countries. Mm-hmm. Their, their eastern border that faces Russia, no matter where they are, seems to have a Russian separatist with re- ex- group within exactly. there that's uh, causing some problems. Exactly. With a region saying, well, we're an independent republic. Suddenly. Hello. The, the threat also comes as NATO has cast off whatever apprehensions it may have had about supplying heavy weapons to Ukraine's military. Transnistria entering the conflict in some respect would expand the war laterally, bringing in, yes, another country to it, Moldova. Like Ukraine, Moldova is not a part of NATO, so even if it does expand to Moldova, that does not necessarily mean we are yet in World War III. But for a war that is so far contained within Ukraine, expanding to Moldova would open up a new southern front for NATO to have to worry about. It would add Romania to a list of countries near the fighting because they border to the west of Moldova. Um, So Romania is a NATO country. They would be uh, concerned about fighting that could happen there. They'd have to worry about strikes and accidental escalation, just as Poland has over the past, uh, what, nine weeks now. Uh, Poland, the Baltics, Slovakia... Uh, you'd have to add Romania to that list. So is that where all of this goes next? Nobody really knows. But if it does, uh, well, I'm hoping that you better understand what that is about, because when I saw Transnistria, I had no idea what the hell that was. Yeah, and if if Putin does try and succeed in creating a land bridge from, you know, uh, Mariupol and Crimea mm-hmm. all the way to Transnistria, yep. blocking off Ukraine, that's really important, blocking off Ukraine's ports mm-hmm. from which Ukraine receives weapons yep. and also ships out uh, grain and other important commodities that actually feed the world. Now, I should note that there are other... So that's one scenario about where all of this could go. There are other, even scarier scenarios being speculated that uh, perhaps we will discuss in the days ahead. Uh, but I won't put you through that for now, as as Russian media is more and more uh, not turning against Putin and the war, but describing what is going on as a holy war using those words, a holy war that they must win no matter the cost, even if that means a holy war against NATO. As I said, scarier scenarios that I won't uh, bother you with today. If peace in and of itself was magically an option, as I wish that it was, I would be all in favor of it. But for now, at least, it does not seem to be an option. Uh, And in any event, that will be up to Ukraine, who is bearing the brunt of all of this. 
Uh, it'll be up to Ukraine and Russia to work out through peace talks, no matter how much we might want to encourage them to do so. For now, Ukraine says they need help. They need weapons. They need humanitarian assistance in addition to the increasing uh, sanctions that continue to pile up from not just the U.S., but from much of the entire world against Russia. And enough is on the line right now in Ukraine, where a holocaust of sorts is playing out right now in places like Mariupol and beyond potentially Ukraine, if and when Russia and Putin become really desperate to show some sort of victory or obscure their losses, that I believe that the U.S. does need to do what it can do to help Ukraine to defend itself at the very least. To that end, the, uh, the president at the White House today asked Congress for an additional $33 billion in aid for Ukraine. That comes on top of the nearly $14 billion that Congress has already allocated. And yeah, that sounds like a lot of money, $33 billion. But please keep in mind, Elon Musk is buying Twitter for $44 billion, largely out of his own personal pocket. So with that in mind, here was Joe Biden at the White House on Thursday. I just uh, signed a request to Congress for critical security, economic and humanitarian assistance uh, to help uh, Ukraine continue to counter Putin's aggression and uh, at a very pivotal moment. We need this bill to support Ukraine in this fight for freedom and our NATO allies, our EU partners, they're going to pay their fair share of the cost as well, but we have to do this. We have to do our part as well in leading the alliance. <clears throat> the cost of this fight uh, is not cheap, but caving to aggression is going to be more costly if we allow it to happen. We either back Ukrainian people as they defend their country or we stand by as the Russians continue their atrocities and aggression in Ukraine. Every day, every day the Ukrainians pay for the price, with, and the price they pay is with their lives for this fight. So we need to contribute arms, funding, ammunition, and the economic support to make their courage and sacrifice have purpose so they can continue this fight and do what they're doing. It's critical this funding gets approved and approved as quickly as possible. Despite the disturbing rhetoric coming out of the Kremlin, the facts are plain for everybody to see. We're not attacking Russia. We're helping Ukraine defend itself against Russian aggression. And just as Putin chose to launch this brutal invasion, he could make the choice to end this brutal invasion. Russia is the aggressor. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Russia is the aggressor, and the world must and will hold Russia accountable. Russia continues assault on uh, is yielding immense human cost. We've seen uh, we've seen them leave behind horrifying evidence of their atrocities and war crimes in the areas they try to control. And as long as the assaults and atrocities continue, we're going to continue to supply military assistance. In the past two months, Russia launched its brutal attack. We've moved weapons and equipment and, uh, to Ukraine in record speed. Thanks to the aid we provided, Russian forces have been forced to retreat from Kyiv. Doesn't mean they're not going to try to come back, but they've retreated thus far. We've sent thousands of anti-armor, anti-missiles, helicopters, drones, grenade launchers, machine guns, rifles, radar systems, more than 50 million rounds of ammunition. The United States alone has provided 10 anti-armor systems for every Russian tank that is in Ukraine, 10 to 1. We're providing Ukraine significant, timely intelligence to help them defend themselves against the Russian onslaught. 
And we're facilitating a significant flow of weapons and systems to Ukraine from our allies and partners around the world, including tanks, artillery, and other weapons. That support is moving with unprecedented speed. Much, much of the new equipment we've announced in the past two, month, two weeks has already gotten to Ukraine, where it can be put to direct use on the battlefield. However, we've almost exhausted what we call the fancy phrase, the drawdown authority, that Congress authorized Ukraine, authorized for Ukraine in a bipartisan spending bill last month. Basically, we're out of money. And so that's why today, in order to sustain Ukraine as, a, as it continues to fight, I'm sending Congress a supplemental budget request. It's going to keep weapons and ammunition flowing without interruption to the brave Ukrainian fighters and continue delivering economic and humanitarian assistance to the Ukrainian people. This so-called supplemental funding addresses the needs of the Ukrainian military during the critical weeks and months ahead. And it begins, it begins the transition to longer-term security assistance that's going to help Ukraine deter and continue to defend against Russian aggression. This assistance would provide even more artillery, armored vehicles, anti-armored systems, anti-air capabilities that have been used so effectively thus far in the battlefield by the Ukrainian warriors. You know, and it's going to deliver much-needed humanitarian assistance as well as food, water, medicine, shelter, and other aid to Ukrainians displaced by Russia's war, and provide aid for those seeking refuge in other countries from Ukraine. <clears throat> it's also going to help schools and hospitals open. It's going to allow pensions and social support to be paid to the Ukrainian people so they have something, something in their pocket. It's also going to provide critical resources to address food shortages around the globe, Ukraine, Ukraine was one of the world's largest agricultural producers. It typically grows 10% of all the wheat that's shipped around the world. Putin has asserted sanctions are blocking food from Ukraine and Russia getting on the market, the sanctions we've imposed on Russia. Simply not true. Putin's war, not sanctions, are impacting the harvest of food and disrupting the movement of that food by land and sea to nations around the globe that need it. This funding is going to help ease rising food prices at home as well and abroad, caused by Russia's war in Ukraine. It's going to help support American farmers produce more crops, like wheat and oilseed, which is good for rural America, good for the American consumer, and good for the world. And this supplemental request will use the Defense Production Act to expand domestic production and reserve and the reserve of critical materials, materials like nickel and lithium that have been disrupted by Putin's war in Ukraine and that are necessary to make everything from defense systems to automobiles. And I hope Congress, I hope Congress will move on this funding quickly. I believe they will. In addition to this supplemental funding, <clears throat> I'm also sending to Congress a comprehensive package of, uh, that will enhance our underlying effort to accommodate the Russian oligarchs uh, and make sure we take their, take their, their ill-begotten gains. <laughs> We're going to accommodate them. We're going to seize their yachts, their luxury homes, and other ill-begotten gains. This legislative package strengthens our law enforcement capabilities to seize property linked to Russia's kleptocracy. It's going to create new expedited procedures for forfeiture and seizure of these, of these properties. That's going to ensure that when the oligarchs' assets are sold off, funds can be used directly to remedy the harm Russia caused in their help 
and help build Ukraine. Additionally, yesterday, Russia threatened two of our allies with a cutoff of energy supplies. While America has ended all Russian fossil fuel imports because we're able to use our vast support supply of power in our country, some European countries have faced more challenges in reducing their reliance on Russian fuel. Russia has long claimed to be, quote, the reliable source of energy for the world. No matter what the differences are, their customers are always going to be, uh, be in good shape. But these actions prove that energy is not just a commodity that Russia sells to help meet other countries' needs, but a weapon we use to deploy against those who stand against their aggression. <clears throat> so let me be clear. We will not let Russia intimidate or blackmail their way out of these sanctions. We will not allow them to use their oil and gas to avoid consequences for their aggression. We're working with other nations like Korea, Japan, Qatar, and others to support our effort to help European allies threatened by Russia with gas, blackmail, and their energy needs in other ways. Aggression will not win. Threats will not win. This is just another reminder of the imperative for Europe and the world to move more and more of our power needs to clean energy. In the United States, we're doing that right now. Last year, we developed more solar, wind, and battery storage than any year in our history, enough to power 56 million American homes. Earlier this month, we acted to bolster the, our reliance, the reliance on our nuclear energy facilities, which generates more than half of our carbon-free power. And we're just getting started. I look at this as a serious problem, but also an enormous opportunity, an opportunity. Bottom line, all these actions we've been taking are about the truth, this truth. Investing in Ukraine's freedom and security is a small price to pay to punish Russia and aggression to lessen the risk for future conflicts. You know, throughout our history, we've learned that when dictators do not pay the price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and engage in more aggression. They keep moving. <clears throat> and the cost, the threats to America and the world keep rising. We can't let this happen. Our unity at home, our unity with our allies and partners, and our unity with the Ukrainian people is sending an unmistakable message to Putin. You will never succeed in dominating Ukraine. That was President Biden at the White House on Thursday uh, asking Congress to uh, give $33 billion in aid uh, to help resupply Ukraine with arms, uh, defensive weapons and uh, and humanitarian assistance. By the way, uh, Desi Doyen, we we've created enough renewable solar, wind, and battery power energy over the past year to power fifty six million American homes. Yes, that that seems good. It is good. He that should, is good news. He should talk about that more. I know, uh, but you know, you have to also have a corporate media that will focus on what he actually says versus, mm. you know, on some chum that seems to get the most engagement and anger out true. of listeners and all that. Yeah, actually, I have to have a corporate media that uh, even covers what he says yes. at all, which is why we try to uh, to to play those uh, remarks when we can at length. Now, normally, by the way, I would I hate the idea of pumping that much military firepower and weapons and ammo, etc., into any country. Uh, and had Biden made that very same pitch before Russia had attacked, I would have been on this show arguing against it, arguing against militarizing yet another nation. 
because I am against war. And, um, you know, programs that are generally meant to prop up our obscene military industrial complex around the world. But now this is not our war. We are not causing this. Russia is causing this. And Ukraine should be able to defend itself. And they are doing that. And though I hate it, I do hope Congress takes this up quickly. And I also hope that Russia gets serious about peace talks. Uh, but for now, it does not appear that they are all that interested in peace, it seems to me. So what Biden is doing, actually, I think is a masterful job of both supporting Ukraine, of bringing, uh, holding uh, NATO and, and, and the world, really, together in opposition of this aggression, without actually pulling us into the war so far that could change at a moment's notice uh but right now i think he's doing uh, you know when i as i'm listening to this i'm thinking oh this is the least he can do and i'm also thinking it's kind of the most he can do at least right now so yeah i think he's doing a hell of a job also i'm also hoping that if nothing else comes out of this, uh, if nothing else good comes out of this, that it will be, A, the world realizing that they really should not rely on Russia for dirty fossil fuels, and that, B, the sooner we all ramp up uh, the use of clean, renewable energy, the less countries around the world will be held hostage to the whims of dictatorial nations like Russia, or, yes, fossil fuel-rich empires like the U.S. Speaking of which, more on some of this in today's Green News Report. That's next on the broadcast. <laughs> I'm Brad Friedman. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Well, like I said earlier in the show, it has no pressure uh, for you to cheer us all up with your Green News report, but I'm, uh, I'm looking at the rundown here. Uh, not so cheery either, is it? I know, yeah, it's yeah. always something, but you know, there's a little bit of light at the yes, end, you so end, to speak. You end on an up note in our latest Green News report. It comes as no surprise that the Kremlin uses fossil fuels to try to blackmail us. Russia cuts off natural gas to two NATO countries. The state recording January and February as the driest two-month start to a year on record in California. Unprecedented water restrictions for Southern California. Record-breaking heat wave broils India and Pakistan. Plus... The world needs zero-emissions vehicles. And more importantly, it needs us to bring them to the many. Ford officially launches the all-electric F-150 Lightning pickup. All of those electrifying stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The bipartisan infrastructure bill allocated $7.5 billion for EV charging stations for the entire country. Elon Musk is spending nearly six times that amount 
to buy a website where people can write stuff in 280 characters. Which tells us two things. One, people really, really like electric vehicles. And two, taxes are way too low for rich people and corporations. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, we are barely into spring, but already much of the world is... As you said, beginning to broil. Indeed, it is only April, but extreme heat is already hammering Southeast Asia. Parts of Pakistan hit record-breaking temperatures of 117 degrees Fahrenheit this week, with millions of people facing power outages of up to 14 hours a day. Mm. India just recorded its hottest March in history in more than a century of record-keeping, and weeks of extreme heat are hammering India's crop yields, with some areas reporting as much as a 35% drop in wheat production. Russian state-owned energy giant Gazprom has shut off natural gas deliveries to Poland and Bulgaria after both countries rejected the Kremlin's new demand that they pay for gas in Russian rubles. Poland says it has ample supply and has been working for years to end its reliance on Russian fossil fuels. Bulgaria gets over 90 percent of its gas from Russia, and officials say they are working to find other sources. It's a dramatic escalation of Russia using energy energy as a weapon to retaliate against countries helping Ukraine resist its brutal invasion. Yeah, but it's not a dramatic escalation of wars revolving around fossil fuels now, is it? We've been doing this for years. In a Wednesday press conference, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen called Russia's moves blackmail. Today, the Kremlin failed once again in his attempt to sow division among member states. The era of Russian fossil fuel in Europe is coming to an end. We have reduced already the flow of gas coming from Russia. And with the plans I've just displayed, we will be able to get uh, independent of Russian fossil fuels much faster. And this is for good and forever. Bloomberg News reports that Russia's invasion has turbocharged the global market for coal. Spiking oil and gas prices caused by Russia's invasion has had a domino effect, pushing electricity producers to scramble for fuel supply, pushing coal prices to record levels. In bone-dry Southern California, for the first time ever, water officials declared a water shortage emergency Mm. and have issued unprecedented new restrictions limiting outdoor watering to only one day per week in parts of the region. In a press conference, Metropolitan Water District CEO Devin Upaday warned even a total ban may be necessary in some areas if conditions don't improve. And they won't improve. There's not enough supply available to meet the normal demands in these areas for the remainder of the year. For the remainder of the year, it's only April. Indeed. But some good news. Social media giant Twitter banned misleading advertisements that deny the scientific consensus of climate change. An all-electric concept car by Mercedes-Benz just set a new EV world record, driving 621 miles on a single charge over the Swiss Alps. Cool. 
And finally, Ford Motor Company officially launched its all-electric Ford F-150 Lightning truck in Michigan this week. But the city power went out. (laughs) Detroit Free Press reports that the Lightning trucks were then pressed into service, along with generators to run the launch event until grid power was eventually restored. Sounds like a scam to me. Are you sure that really happened? It really did, and Detroit Free Press says it was not staged. Uh Ford CEO Jim Farley got a bit cheeky when touting the truck's capabilities. You can even charge other EVs. For your friends that own Teslas. <laughs> nice. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Knock on wood, baby. <laughs> Indeed. Hey, and an additional note of potentially good news. Oh, good. Uh, Germany apparently today reportedly yeah. said that it will no longer oppose a ban on Russian imports of oil for EU countries. Wow. Nice. So that's kind of a big deal. Of course, it doesn't apply to Russian gas. Yeah, which, oil, not gas. Oil, not gas, which Germany is incredibly dependent upon. But a lot of money uh, will be lost to Russia on oil and on coal, and maybe Russia will We'll keep telling them they they can't have gas and cut off its own nose to spite its own face. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the things that uh, Ursula von der Leyen said, was that Russia is really only hurting itself by doing all of this. Mm -hmm. But um, on the worst side, though, it did raise oil prices Mm -hmm. on the global market because if Germany does no longer opposes the ban, then that will tighten oil supplies further. I thought we were supposed to end this on a good news note. (laughs) As usual, ruining everything. Thank you very much, Desi Doyle. And our producer, thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated, especially when we don't have a particularly cheery show. Thank you for that. If you missed any portion of today's program or you just want to put yourself through the nightmare all over again, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Don't forget, everything we do is made possible by those of you who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you for that support. Drop me email if you like. I'm Bradcast at Bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, if you can stand it, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. It's like-